This is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Kia Miyaka-Natisse. Happy Friday. You know what that means. Two books for the price of one pod. Tuckies to the front, these books are for you and for everybody, but especially you. In a minute, we'll get into the idea someone could track our actual brain activity, which may be more science than fiction. But first, with the AI future coming, the real cause for concern, according to Paul Shari, is the way governments and militaries might utilize their power. His new book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, goes deep into the halls of power to explore what just might be to come. He shared more with NPR's Ari Shapiro. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. At least one billion surveillance cameras are spying on the world right now, according to one estimate, and more than half of them are in China, though the country has less than a fifth of the world's population. To sort through data from those hundreds of millions of cameras, the Chinese government is enlisting the help of artificial intelligence, technology that can identify faces, voices, even the way someone walks. Paul Shari investigated the country's surveillance systems for his new book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. He writes that AI has the power to reshape the entire landscape of human governance and warfare, from enabling the spread of authoritarianism to influencing how wars start and end. Paul Shari, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You say early on in the book that the dangers of AI are not the dangers science fiction warned us about. We don't have to be afraid of killer robots rebelling against their human makers, at least not yet. So what is the immediate threat? Well, the immediate threat isn't that the AI systems turn on us. It's what people may do with these AI technologies. And we can see, as you mentioned, in China, the development of an AI-enabled model of repression that China is pioneering, particularly in Xinjiang. Uh, where they're using AI to help uh, in the repression of the ethnic Uyghurs that live there, but also nationwide. And then China's beginning to export its model of AI-enabled repression globally. When you spent time in China looking at the country's use of AI, what surprised you? So many things. Um, One of them is, you know, it's one thing to hear about 500 million surveillance cameras deployed in China, but it's an entirely different thing to walk down the streets of a major Chinese city and see these cameras everywhere, at light poles, at intersections, halfway down the block, sometimes to the point of absurdity. I would sit and count how many cameras there were on a given light pole. And so the the surveillance is very ubiquitous, and it's not trying to be hidden because, of course, the Chinese Communist Party wants to subtly remind people that, in fact, they are being watched. Yeah. And... Um, one of the things that AI enables the government to do is to then put electronic eyeballs behind all these cameras. Because how do you monitor 500 million cameras? Well, you need AI to do it. As China exports this technology and these standards and norms to countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela and others, how does that ripple out? 
Well, one of the things that's really troubling, of course, is China's export of its surveillance technology and the social software, the norms and standards behind how it's used. China's technology for policing and surveillance has been sold to over 80 countries worldwide. But China's also been engaging in training with countries on things like information management and cyberspace laws and norms, exporting its model for how AI technology can be used for censorship and surveillance. Uh, Over 30 countries have been engaged in some of these training sessions. And in many cases, we've seen that following Chinese engagement, there have been laws that other countries have passed that show China's model. Is it accurate to view this as a kind of yin-yang where on the one hand, China is spreading this AI-powered autocratic philosophy, and on the other hand, the U.S. and Western Europe are spreading something else? Well, one of the hard parts about this problem is that there should be, we would like to see pushback from democratic countries, the United States and others, about how AI is used so that there is a competing model that's consistent with democratic values. But that doesn't exist yet. Hmm. Um, There's, of course, quite a bit of pushback here in the United States and in Europe against the use of facial recognition technology, particularly by law enforcement. Certainly, democratic governments are not doing what the Chinese government is doing. But one of the things that's difficult within democratic societies is because power is so much more decentralized, the process of coming up with a model for AI governance is much messier. It's slower because there's a give and take between the government and local and state and federal authorities and civil society and the media and grassroots movements of citizens. And so it's taking longer for there to be a model coming out of democratic countries. And that's a problem because there's a vacuum in really the ability to push back against what China is doing. I'd love for you to share an anecdote that you begin the book with where you describe aircraft dogfight trials where there are two simulated pilots. One is human, one is AI. And what happened? Sure. So the U.S. military did a project to build an AI dogfighting agent. So an AI agent that could control an aircraft in a simulator, although they are now working on transporting this to real-world aircraft, and it could engage in dogfighting against a human And in the final trials, the winning agent among a number of different companies that submitted their AIs in a competition went head-to-head against an experienced Air Force pilot and hands down crushed the human pilot. Uh, Human pilot didn't get a single shot off against the AI. And one of the things that was quite remarkable was that the AI actually learned on its own new techniques for dogfighting that humans actually can't do executing head-to-head gunshots when there's a split second when the aircraft are circling each other and the aircraft are nose-to-nose. And there's really no good way for a human to get a shot off. It's just too dangerous. It's too dangerous. The aircraft are racing at each other um, at high speeds and then they risk a collision. And there's only a split second where you actually could make an engagement. But the AI learned that it could do that. It could do that with superhuman precision. And it was very lethal and effective. Paul, I know you said at the beginning, we don't have to worry about AI rebelling against humans and overpowering us. But what you're saying right now is not reassuring. <laughs> well, well, I do think there's a risk that over time in warfare, for example, as more and more AI systems are adopted by militaries, we begin to see a transition to a period of warfare in which humans effectively have to hand over control to machines. Some Chinese scholars have talked about the idea of a singularity 
on the battlefield where the pace of combat action eclipses humans' ability to respond and militaries effectively have to turn over the keys to AI systems just to remain competitive. And that is a troubling prospect. To end on a more positive note, of course, there's a chance that AI could start or inflame a war, but you also write that AI could help avoid war. How would that work? Well, one of the things that AI might be potentially very valuable for is increasing transparency among states and making it easier for states to process information and to have more accurate information about, for example, political decision-making among other countries or the military balance of power. A great example of this came out of the uh, run-up to Russia's invasion in Ukraine, where the United States government released lots of information about Russia's military buildup, helping to shine a light on the fact that Russia was poised to invade Ukraine. Now, they didn't stop Russia's invasion, but what it allowed the U.S. to do was to convince allies that this invasion was coming, it was likely very real, and to help build up political and diplomatic support for Ukraine. And that's a great example where AI can be used to help process information from drones and satellites. And so that use of AI to get more information, accurate information about the world, could be one way in which AI could be very stabilizing internationally. Paul Shari's latest book is Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Our next book imagines the maybe not so welcome future in which your boss tracks your productivity via a computer device that connects to your brain. Author Nita Farahani writes about the possibilities and perils of neurotechnology in her new book, The Battle for Your Brain. Here she is talking about establishing an international right to cognitive liberty with NPR's Elsa Chang. Neurotechnology directly links the human brain with computers. It has the potential to make us smarter and more alert, to make our everyday technology easier to use, and even help us live longer, better lives. And law and philosophy professor Nita Farahani says a neurotechnology revolution is right around the corner. Imagine a near-distant future in which uh, it isn't just your heart rate or your oxygen levels or the steps that you're taking that you're tracking, but also your brain activity, where you're wearing wearable brain sensors that are integrated into your headphones and your earbuds. But what will happen to all this data collected straight from the brain? If you can do so, so can your employer to track your productivity in the workplace or governments to interrogate your brain for any crimes that you might have committed. In our new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Farahani argues that we should prepare for this rise in neurotechnology by establishing an international human right to what she calls cognitive liberty. As an Iranian-American, she's quite familiar with the consequences of silencing free speech. All of my first cousins, my aunts, my uncles, all still live in Iran, having conversations with them where they're afraid to speak or to share what's happening. When the Green Revolution was happening, they were afraid to even tell us about anything that was happening. They would, you know, sort of say, no, 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 it's nothing's happening here. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. 
seeing that, I think it shapes your worldview and it certainly shaped mine. It shapes the way in which I approach technologies to recognize that it can and is misused on a regular basis. Well, you lay out some pretty ominous scenarios with neurotechnology that present real ethical dilemmas. And I want to take up a few of them one by one. But first, I want to talk about this idea that you introduce called the right to cognitive liberty, which you argue could be directly threatened by advances in neurotechnology. How would you define the right to cognitive liberty? So the simplest definition I can give is it's the right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. Mm -hmm. I describe it as a right from other people interfering with our brains, but also a right to, a right to access and to change and to enhance, to decide what our own mental experiences would be. It directs us as an international human right to update existing human rights, the right to privacy, the right to freedom of thought, which ought to also protect us from having our thoughts um, used against us or manipulated. Um, And the right to self-determination has been understood as a collective right, a political right. Um, But it also really is foundational to almost every other right that we recognize within the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so I argue it should be a right to informational self-access, but also a right to make decisions about whether we enhance or diminish or change our own brains. All right. Well, let's talk about this set of rights within specific contexts. I want to start with the workplace because that's a place I think so many of us can relate to. And the rise of workplace surveillance What kind of data do you believe employers should be able to collect about their workers? When it comes to neurotechnology, there's already in thousands of companies worldwide at least basic brain monitoring that's happening for some employees. And that usually is tracking things like fatigue levels. If you're a commercial driver or if you're a miner, um, having brain sensors that are embedded in hard hats or baseball caps that are picking up your fatigue levels, which I think in some instances we as a society could think, actually, that's a a legitimate, yeah, yeah, that, you know, if it's a commercial driver, Mm -hmm. keep people safe, it can be an alert. And I think it depends on how it's done. But the idea of tracking a person's brain. Like a wandering mind? Literally to see whether or not they are focused or if their mind is wandering. When companies use it, to see if their employees are paying attention and which ones are paying the most attention and which ones have periods of mind wandering and then using that as part of productivity scoring, it undermines morale. What about governments that, in the interest of protecting other individuals, seek access into our brains? Like you bring up the 2002 movie Minority Report about how the government could stop murders before they happened by tapping into the brains of would-be killers. Can you see a world where the Supreme Court of the United States is one day considering cases involving the search and seizure of brain activity to prosecute individuals? A couple of weeks ago, I would have said that that was science fiction um, because, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, you would you would actually obtain somebody's brain data and use it against them really belongs in the movies rather than in real life. And then I found out that in a recent case, a defendant sought to introduce their own brain data to show that they were having an epileptic seizure instead of actually assaulting an officer at the time. Wow. It's like Um, a brain alibi. It literally is a brain alibi. And (laughs) we saw in the Alex Murdoch case, all of the different technological information that was introduced, you know, from different kind of 
eavesdropping of what's happening with our everyday technology. And as brain sensors become part of our everyday technology, that's the transformation that I'm talking about in the book is that brain sensors are being put into our everyday technology to make them multifunctional devices. We're going to be picking up a lot of incidental information from the brain that are going to make their way into criminal cases, are going to be introduced um, as evidence both to support a crime as well as as evidence of alibis. Can you imagine a day when law enforcement will be seeking warrants into our brains? You know, I can. And there are already cases both in the United States and worldwide where governments are using so-called brain fingerprinting technology where they look for um, these responses in the brain to presenting a person with images that only somebody who knew the details of the crime scene, for example, should be aware of. And the science is dubious, um, but it's happening. Let me ask you, you lay out guiding principles throughout this book for how best to handle neurotechnology and the advances in neurotechnology. But my question is, is the genie already out of the bottle? Like, how do people today ensure today that their privacy and personal liberties aren't taken away by neurotechnology? Is it possible? So I think we stand on the cusp of a revolution here. And cognitive liberty, I believe, is implicated by far more than just neurotechnology. There are so many ways in which our brains and mental experiences are being accessed and changed. But I don't think it's too late. I think that this, this last bastion of freedom before brain wearables become really widespread is a moment at which we could decide we're going to lay down a set of rights and interests that favor individuals and their right to cognitive liberty and change the default. If you want to get access to the data, you have to seek an exception to it. It isn't just by right or expectation that mm -hmm. companies or governments can commodify that information. But we don't have much time. This book is, you know, a wake-up call. It's a call to action for everybody to be part of the conversation to make the choices and to lay down that foundation now before it's too late to do so. Nita Farahani is the founding director of the Duke University Initiative for Science and Society. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was really delightful. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Kia Miakanatis. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Barry Gordimer, Olivia Hampton, Gabriel Dunatov, Melissa Gray, Elena Burnett, Mallory Yu, Kat Lonsdorf, Ashley Brown, Lee Hale, Christopher Intagliata, Vincent Acovino, and Justine Kennan. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.